and we are live. Hello, and a very warm welcome to Not the 92 Extra. My name is Greg Clark, and I'm your host for this podcast, a satirical but informative weekly show dedicated to all things non-league. Now, I am not really one for making rash assumptions, but I can safely assume you probably all read the title and got absolutely buzzing at who has given up their time to offer his professional experiences and stories out to all of you listeners. So I'm going to shut up, really, and I'm going to stay quiet for the next foreseeable. That's right. Today, we've pulled the rabbit right out of the hat. We are joined by a man who some might say they automatically think of his voice whenever they replay a famous goal in their head. For me, such as Andre Arshavin's four-goal haul against Liverpool way back in 2009 at Anfield. Well, that's mine, however obscure it might be. This man has been the voice and authority of BBC Sport, ITV Sport, Satanta Sports, ESPN and BT Sport, as well as being the soundbite of thousands of famous football moments throughout history. From countless Champions League and World Cup finals to Football League playoffs and FA Cup finals, from his beloved Bootham Crescent to the Maracana. We really are privileged and delighted to have him on our show. Ladies and gentlemen, live from his residence in New England, USA, Mr. John Champion. John, how are you? Yeah, very good. Nice to be with you. How are you doing? Oh, very well, thank you. Like I say, I mean, we had a discussion off air about how nice the weather's been, but you could describe it as being what? Oh, it's a bit like wrapping yourself in a hot, wet blanket here at the moment. I mean, it's 97 degrees outside and humidity is up in the 90s as well. So it's actually not that pleasant. It's one of the few setbacks of uh, being in, in New England. They have a lovely autumn here. The winter's pretty harsh, but the summer can just be smotheringly hot. But I'm sitting in a hotel, actually, at the moment in a place called West Hartford, Connecticut. It's about 100 miles north of New York City and 100 miles south of Boston, which is where I currently live. Yeah. But I'm working on the Major League Soccer is Back tournament. This is a, a quarantine tournament at Disney World in Orlando, Florida, which is being broadcast in its entirety, all 51 games by my current employers, ESPN. And this is a way that they've managed to, to get back to playing professional sports in a country that, as you will gather from the news every night of the week at the moment, is absolutely ridden by coronavirus, particularly in areas like Florida and California. It's not so bad around here. People are a bit more sensible. They do wear masks. There is some social distancing. But, but elsewhere, it's just raging out of control. So it's a real achievement of, of MLS to actually manage to get this tournament on. And we're now three quarters of the way through it. So I've been staying in this hotel and actually having to call the games off a TV monitor in the studios uh, each day because okay. we're not allowed to be in Florida where the, the tournament is being held at the moment. Is that not a very, very large frustration for you, given the fact you're so used to being like, in front and centre of the action? Yeah, it makes it so much more difficult and so much less satisfying because a lot of your commentary is based on things that maybe you see out of the corner of your eye. I mean, on TV, mm. you're there to caption the picture that 25 cameras around the pitch are providing. But at the same time, sometimes you can draw the attention of the match director and therefore the cameraman to something that's happening, but you just don't get that wider picture. And if the direction of the match isn't very good, I mean, I commentated on a penalty shootout last night in one of the games. Uh, and the match direction didn't really tell you who was going to come up and take the next penalty until you saw them running up to, to address the ball. So that doesn't give the commentator much of a chance to do the job in a normal way. So, yeah, it's been a bit frustrating. And also on US sports television, the, the tradition is that you are the host, the presenter, as well as the commentator. So I'm having to dress up in all my finery, get my makeup on and do the pre-game show, as they call it here, the halftime show, and then the post-match, as well as then taking my little IFB, my earpiece, out of my ear during the commercial break, putting on a headset with a microphone, and then commentating on the game as well. So I think they're getting their money's worth. 
We said it certainly sounds like it. I mean, to double your workload in just one match seems like a bit of a task. But I thought, yeah. what I think might be more of a task, actually, and this is something that um, I think before we start, the listeners would love to know. Um, Ali McCoyce, right, has gone on record to say the month spent with you at the 2018 World Cup in Russia was absolutely phenomenal. However, what was it like to actually have to listen to his relentless stories, like relentless stories of fun? And I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, other, other things that maybe can't be repeated. But what was it like to, like, when you're traveling to St. Petersburg, Sochi, and Nizhny Novgorod, Kaliningrad, Vladivostok, Moscow. What was it like actually traveling with that guy and being with him nonstop? Well, listen, this is this is difficult for me because I've only just finished my course of therapy to recover <laughs> from the experience. Uh, but I am out the other side and I can just about talk about it in a rounded fashion now. Uh, no, in all seriousness, it was fantastic for me. I mean, he's just a bundle of uh, a bundle of joy, really. I've never known anybody, and I've known Ali for 25 years. We even worked together on the World Cup of 1998 for the BBC. Not as commentator and co-commentator, he was one of the studio pundits, but we spent some time together then. I've known him, frighteningly, a quarter of a century and more, and I've, I don't think I can think of anyone else I've met who enjoys life more yeah. than Ali McCoyst. Every time he wakes up in the morning, he's just determined to make the most out of that day. I wish I had that attitude. Uh, it's a precious gift, but he's got it. And he just enriches the, the life and the experience of anyone that's around him. So we, the little group of us that were traveling around Russia with, with him as part of it, we were just so lucky to have him as part of our lives for that five week period. And I, I mean, I've, I'm so fortunate to have done eight World Cups so far. And I've nav never had as fun a month as, as we had traveling around a country that we approached with some trepidation because we'd heard all the, the fear stories. Both of us had been to Russia many times before, but never to spend five weeks and never really much beyond Moscow. So it was a trip into the unknown to a large degree, but socially it was magnificent. And then of course, he started coming out with all these cultural, uh, sociological and historical uh, stories that he'd allegedly researched, I think mostly on Wikipedia. And, yeah. um, and in a broadcasting sense, we were off and running and it just seemed to gather a bit of momentum and people seemed to quite enjoy what we were doing. So it was, it was great fun. See the way it works. Like we don't really see that side of like of broadcasting, of course. Like you know, to go out and enjoy yourself and do like go to the tourist sites and whatnot. Um, I think Ali might have said that um, you, he's well allowed to go out for a drink at night if you wanted to. Like was that something you you both do? Yeah, we would. I mean, probably we wouldn't go drinking heavily the night before a game. In fact, we probably wouldn't have a drink at all the night before a match. But you get a few days when you're travelling and you can have a beer at the airport or maybe you've got a rest day the next day. So there's always a chance to do that. We did try. We just thought it was silly to be in the, the sort of backwater areas of Russia at, when we weren't in Moscow and not go and see some of the things that otherwise we just wouldn't see in the course of our normal lives, even if we went on holiday, because they're not really holiday destinations. So we had ridiculous experiences. I mean, I remember one day playing billiards on Stalin's billiards table at his holiday dacha in Sochi, where they were playing some of the matches. And the phone rang and, and Ali passed the, the phone to me and it was Walter Smith wanting to have a chat. Now, I'd not really spoken to Walter since he was the manager of Everton. 15 yeah. years or so before, but had always got on very well with him. I'd seen him once or twice since. And he was ringing and he, he just, I, so I put down my cue on Stalin's billiards table and he said, and I'm not going to attempt the accent particularly. <laughs> you, you can ask me if you want. Yeah. <laughs> and he just said, I just wanted to congratulate you. He said, because you have managed to make McCoy's turn up on time for 15 consecutive football matches. And it's something that was a lifetime's ambition of mine. And I never got close to doing it. And, uh, and it was just surreal to be having that conversation with Walter Smith whilst playing on Stalin's billiards table with Ali McCoyst. So that probably summed up our World Cup experience. It was, uh, it was an odyssey, all right. 
I'm sure all the Rangers and Scotland fans uh, of, of who are listening will, will appreciate that story. And the streets of Samara will certainly never forget. So <laughs> I wanted to kind of like touch on like the, the kind of chemistry with, between you and McCoy's certainly did resonate back home. Like if you look at social media trends back then, it was often champion and McCoy's. And like, would, would you say he's up there with your favourite co-coms? Yeah, yeah, he's just he's just such fun to work with. Um, I mean, I don't think he wouldn't claim to be the most forensic of co-coms, but <laughs> what he does do is that he shows that he's actually there and enjoying it. And I think some co-commentators, by no means all, but some perhaps take it a little bit too seriously and forget that actually they're in a privileged position and that they should be enjoying what they're doing. And yet they're a bit grumpy and miserable, but you could never accuse Ali McCoyst of that. And I think that's probably the thing that resonated more than anything else with the public back home. The fact that it was just two guys having a good time and clearly enjoying doing what anyone with half a brain back home would love to have been doing in their place. So I think to, to go on and be mealy-mouthed and say, oh, this game's not very good, or we're not really enjoying ourselves today, or oh, we had a bad journey yesterday, is not the way to go. But if you've got McCoyst with you, you haven't got that option anyway, because he just wants to enjoy himself. Of course, I think it does seem like uh, this kind of glass half full kind of person, just like enjoying life for what it is. Um, but more in the major tournaments later, as um, Tom and Ahmed and myself will, will ask you about, I'd, li- but I'd want to throw it right back to where it all began for you. Now, you're a proud Harrogation. Is that, is that the right, right way of saying it? Harrogation, yeah? Do you know, I'm not sure because I was born in Harrogate, but I only spent two days there before <laughs> I went back to my parents' home in York. So I'm really a product of York. I was only born in Harrogate because my mum's best friend was a midwife at Harrogate District Hospital and offered to deliver me and bring me into the world. So my mother accepted that offer. So she went to Harrogate Hospital to have me. But then we went 25 miles down the road to York, which is where the family home was. And that's where I grew up, really, and where, in fact, my mother still lives. So I'm a periodic visitor back to York to, to go and see her. And of course, um, York City kind of began, like, they, they, they kind of, you chose them to be your team because you grew up not too far from the stadium and from Bootham Crescent. What's your first ever football memory? And can you remember your fir- the first game you ever attended? Yeah, uh, I, can, I can do both of those. My first football memory is uh, probably seeing the floodlights because from my house in York, you could see the floodlights in the back garden and you could hear the crowd on a Saturday afternoon. My first experience of going into Bootham Crescent was at the age of five, but it wasn't to go and watch a match because my mum and dad weren't keen on me going. They wanted me to be a musician. So they used to send me off to endless orchestra practice and things. And, uh, and they weren't at all keen on me going to the football or, or indeed playing a great deal of sport at that time, which was frustrating. And I eventually rebelled against it. But um, I went because I was sent to an infant school at the age of four and a half, which directly abutted Bootham Crescent. In fact, our playground was behind the area of terracing behind one of the goals where the majority of the home supporters would stand. It's now the David Longhurst stand, named after a striker who tragically died during the course of a match at York uh, over 20 years ago. Then it was open terracing. So I used to spend half my time actually shamefacedly sneaking into the football ground at the age of five to go and get our ball back after an errant shot in the the playground uh, during break. So that was my first taste of Bootham Crescent. My first game there, I didn't manage to go until the 7th of January, 1978, I was 12 years old, and I eventually harangued one of my dad's friends and work colleagues, who was a keen fan, into taking me one Saturday afternoon, and I saw York beat Newport County, 2-0. The crowd was 1,971, and the goals were scored by Peter Scott, who was a Northern Ireland international fullback who had previously played for Everton, and Gordon Staniforth, who went on to play in an FA Cup side later in his career for Plymouth Argyle, he also played for Hull and several other clubs. 
Um, he scored a penalty and he's also, and this is another useless fact, you'll get lots of them from us commentators, he's the dad of Lucy Staniford, who's a current England women's international. So ah, yeah, I thought I'd recognise the name. Yeah, he's a uh, lovely fellow, Gordon Staniford, he's a great winger. I remember the player that caught my attention the most was called Jan, I now know it to be, because again, it, you're touching on another commentator thing, pronunciations, I now know it to be Jan Novacki, but it looked like Jan Novacki on the, the programme that I got that day. And he was this flying winger. Um, he was built a bit like a coat hanger, big shoulders, but not quite wiry, the rest of him. And uh, he was on loan from Bolton Wanderers and he sounded really exotic. And he was the most eye-catching player in a very poor York team that day. Um, but he wasn't at all exotic because he came from Chorley. <laughs> yeah, the lovely Northwest. So yes, like, what's this love of football? I mean, obviously from a very young age, you said you'd I mean, had to rebel a little bit from like being uh, advised to maybe try out being an orchestra, but football was your really, really your passion. Was that this love of football something you thought at school we could turn into a career? For example, like when you're at school, it's kind of quite commonplace to see like young boys and girls like say, I want to be a footballer. And teachers, teachers always shoot them down. I was the exact same. And that's why I, I, I wasn't a footballer. So um, did you like, wait, like grow up and think, I want to be a commentator? Did you have any he comment commentary heroes at all? Or? Um, I probably, looking back, I probably had... Um, some commentators that I really looked up to and thought were, were really great. Um, I never had any ambition, though, to be a broadcaster or to enter the, the career that I've followed for the last goodness knows how many years. Um, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I was very lucky in that I was pretty hopeless at school academically. I got decent O-level results, as they then were before GCSEs, and continued on to do A-levels, but I wasn't good at exams, and I completely flunked my A-levels. I got a B in general studies, which was the one subject that you could take without having to revise. All you had to do was to, to read the papers every day and be up on current affairs. And I got an E in German. And I suppose this offers hope to anyone that struggles with exams that it doesn't necessarily hold you back. I managed to fail English entirely. So yeah, bearing in mind, yeah. I've made my career words. That, that's, I think that offers hope to anyone. Um, so I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got to 19 and left school. Um, so I resolved, because my results weren't good enough to get me into any form of, of further or higher education, that I would get myself a job for six months, earn some money, enough money to go travelling for six months. So that would take up a year. And then in that time, I would supposedly think about what I wanted to do with my life. So I got myself a job at the British Lending Library at Boston Spa in West Yorkshire, uh, which is not too far from Leeds. And it was a menial job, just stacking books on shelves, um, it was dealing with periodicals, magazines, and academics from across the world at universities doing research. If they wanted, this was in the days before the internet, if they wanted a particular academic paper, the British Library at Boston Spa would have it because it was the biggest such library in the entire world. And so my job would be to go and find the said article or piece of research, photocopy it, parcel it up and send it off to wherever in the world um, the academic or researcher or interested party was. It was mind-blowingly dull, but what it did do was give me some thinking time and it got me a little bit of money and I started to make plans to go travelling. And then one day I played in a cricket match and, yeah, you mentioned football, but in truth, my favourite sport growing up was probably cricket and it was the right. only sport that I could play to any sort of acceptable level. So the idea of being a footballer, for example, was never a go because I had no coordination um, and, and just was not even in the conversation to get in the school team. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that was a no-no. It didn't even cross my mind to think about being a footballer, even in that dreamy way that so many people think it might happen to them. But cricket was, was different, and I played in a cricket match in York one day, got a few runs, 
went in the bar afterwards, had a few beers, and then the, the pay phone in the corner rang. This is how long ago it was. There were no mobile phones either. And it was the local radio station, which was BBC Radio York, which was newly set up. This was 1984. And um, they wanted to interview me about my innings that day, which had had a material effect on York winning this game of cricket. So fortified by two or three pints of Tetley's, I waxed lyrical on the phone about what I'd done. Um, didn't give it a second thought, put the phone down after a three or four minute interview, went and had a few more beers, went home. <laughs> didn't think about it anymore until two weeks later, there was a phone call at home from the sports editor of this newly established local radio station saying, we were very interested with what you had to say on the air a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, oh, crikey, I can't remember because all the beer I'd had, what <laughs> I did say, have I said something wrong? Have I upset someone? And they said, no, 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 don't worry about that. We thought you sounded very much at home on the air, very fluent. You bet I was fluent after several pints of Tetley's. Um, and we just wonder, we're looking for a, a few people to report on a bit of rugby and football this winter as we set up our sports programming. Would you be interested? We really like the sound of your voice. There's no money in it. We'll pay your traveling expenses, but you might enjoy it and who knows where it might lead. So I thought in for a penny and for a pound, I'll give it a go. I've got nothing better to do. So I did it for a few weeks and six weeks further down the line. There was another phone call from the radio station. And this time it was the manager to say, look, we really think you've got something. You've taken us by surprise because you sound such a natural broadcaster. Your voice sounds right. Your delivery is right. It doesn't seem to worry you. You don't sound nervous on the air. And that was because I hadn't really had time to think about it. I just did it, enjoyed it, went and did something else the next day. And it wasn't something that was make or break for me or so I thought at that stage. But the manager said, look, we think you've got a chance of making a career out of this if you're interested. And I thought, boy, am I interested because this <laughs> is good fun and, and they might even pay me one day. So I said, yeah, what do I need to do? And he said, well, the BBC only takes graduates. And I said, well, that's a problem because my exam results are so um, academically dreadful that there's no chance of me going to university. And he said, well, it doesn't matter what course you go on. It's more about going away for three years, growing up a bit, maturing. We'll give you work to do at weekends. We'll pay you a little bit for it. So it'll supplement your grant as it then was as a student. And as long as you train on, we'll sort you out with a job at the end of it. And that's what happened. So at two weeks notice, I got myself on a, a forerunner of a media degree. It was a, a course called Communication and Cultural Studies with Public Media at a Catholic teacher training college called Trinity and All Saints, mm. which ludicrously was affiliated to Leeds University. And I say ludicrously, not as any reflection of the institution itself, but because its degrees were validated by Leeds University. So here am I, a complete thicko in, in, in academic terms, and I have a Russell Group um, degree afterward. I'm allowed to say John Champion BA brackets Leeds, which is a complete nonsense. But I went away and did this course for three years, worked at weekends, commentated, reported. They kept giving me better and better work to do at weekends. I was actually earning a reasonable amount of money. I got offered three or four jobs by the BBC not just as a commentator, but as a presenter as well. And I turned them all down because I thought, no, I want a firm foundation here. I need to get this degree behind me. So at least I've got some sort of qualification in my life. Mm. So I managed to, to, to get all the way through the three-year degree. It was three years ordinary degree and four years honours. And I thought about staying on for the honours year, but it, it became clear that I was going to be able to get a decent job. And sure enough, six weeks before my ordinary exam finals, the end of year three, there was a phone call from a very prim and proper lady called Miss Jackson at the HR department at the BBC in London. And it went something like this. So the phone rings and I pick it up and this very prim voice says, hello, it's Miss <laughs> Jackson here from the British Broadcasting Corporation in London. 
and I said, I wasn't expecting the call, so I said, ah, Miss Jackson, it's very nice to be speaking to you. To, to what do I owe the, the pleasure? It's about the job. I said, <laughs> the job. She said, yes, the job. <laughs> and I, I said, I'm afraid you've lost me here. You're going to have to enlighten me. Has nobody spoken to you about the possibility of getting a job? And I said, well, in broad terms they have, but not specifically. Why are you ringing? And she said, well, look, we have an opening for a sports reporter at the BBC in Leeds. I believe it's somewhere in the north of the country. And it's coming due in six weeks. We have an interview panel on Friday, and we've decided that you will attend at three o'clock. So basically, they'd put in my application for a job I didn't know existed and had booked me in for an interview. So she went on to say, these are the questions that we're going to ask you. And these, please note them down, are the answers we would like you to produce. Three o'clock, Friday, Portland Place, London. Don't forget to wear a tie. So effectively, it was a setup. I knew the questions. Mm -hmm. I knew what the answers were that I had to parrot out. So I spent a couple of nights at home, like an actor learning a script, trying to commit these answers to memory and find a way of producing them without yeah. sounding like I'd just committed them to memory. Yeah. And I turned up quite nervously at Broadcasting House in London, did the interview, and they gave me the job, surprise, surprise, and kept it open until after my finals. And that was me off and running with a sports reporter's job at, at Radio Leeds, which was a great patch to work in because you had excellent football. Leeds were struggling at the time, but coming up in the world, uh, Billy Bremner was the manager at the time. Oh, Howard, Wilkinson was, yeah, short, uh, Howard Wilkinson shortly afterwards took over and then got them promoted to the top division and then they won the league title. The rugby league was very strong and the cricket was very strong. So that was a great place to be working. So I was just extraordinarily lucky really to get a foot up to get me started in the industry. Mm. Well, two things then. Obviously, first of all, you can definitely relate to the era of the Damned United. <laughs> uh, yes. Secondly, of course, um, I think it's genuinely inspirational for our listeners out there who are maybe at school and don't really know what they're doing. Um, there are more than one ways to skin a cat. I mean, this, it doesn't matter how un unconventional it may seem. Uh, and uh, you're the living embodiment of that. So that's, that's a fantastic story. And then, So you're, you're now at the BBC. You've got reasonably well established entering an era where there's going to be football, the rugby league's going to be very, very strong. Don Revy's at the helmet leads. Um, can you remember your first live game and how nervous were you? Um, well, you have to appreciate that I didn't really start off commentating on a regular basis because you, you can't, and this is another thing for people to appreciate, you can't really expect to go in at the very start and start commentating straight away. You sort of have to learn some of the other disciplines. So it, more often than not, I would be reporting at that stage, doing the, the reports every few minutes of, of a game live, but you'd only have 30 seconds or 45 seconds. And that was a discipline in itself, learning to deliver those live voice pieces, match reports, match updates. You'd be doing interviews, you'd be reading sports bulletins. So the first live football match commentary that I ever did was actually in that period when I was at college. And I did an FA Cup tie at Meadow Lane between Notts County and Scarborough. Notts County won 6-1. And I did the commentary for Radio York, uh, which was the outfit that was giving me most of my work whilst I was at, at college, before I got my first staff job with the, the BBC. So I would have been, at the time, 21 years old. Wow. Um, it was 1986. Uh, so that was the, the first chance that I got to actually commentate, and that went well. And then I started to get more commentaries off the the back of that. So later in 1986, I also remember 
commentating for Radio York on a, a big FA Cup fifth round tie at Bootham Crescent between York and Liverpool, which ended 1-1, and the replay, which went to extra time at Anfield before Liverpool under Kenny Dalglish ran out 3-1 winners. So uh, memories like that, um, my early commentaries were sporadic because you have to work your way in. And I think that's still the, still the case now. Um, but they were great experiences. And I remember being very nervous about that because commentating is a bit like doing a high wire act without a safety net. And that's both the appeal of it and the potential pitfall of it in that you can hurt yourself quite badly, figuratively speaking, if you fall off that wire, if you get something badly wrong, which happens to all of us from time to time. And you can never rule that out entirely. But at the same time, it also gives you the adrenaline rush that makes the job worth doing. So you have to learn to, to deal with both the disasters, relatively speaking, and the moments of delight when, uh, by whatever means, you manage to get something right. Well, I mean, uh, that was also an era where like, I think commentators were already very established in, in the industry. I mean, you had Kenneth Wilson home back in the 60s, who, of course, did um, Celtic's European Cup final against uh, Inter Milan in 1967. Um, so, like... You've got people like Alan Green, Rob Hawthorne, all working alongside you. What was it like to like learn from those guys? And like, what was it also like covering the Premier League, FA Cup, League Cup, and the Football League in that particular era? It was great. Um, I mean, in terms of the chronology, I grew up listening to probably the commentator that influenced me the most was a radio commentator called Peter Jones, who was arguably oh. the greatest radio commentator on football that this country's ever had. I mean, people will have their own favourites. Peter Jones died at the age of 60 in 1990. He collapsed and had a, a heart attack whilst on a launch covering the university boat race on the Thames for BBC Radio. And it was also, and this is a very small part of a very sad story, the first day that I, having moved from local radio to national radio, um, had been given the flagship programme Sport on Two, as it then was, now Sport mm. on Five or Five Live Sport and, and Sports Report with the famous music at five o'clock and James Alexander Gordon reading the, the football results. It was the first time I'd been given that to present that day. And it was the day that, that Peter died. But he was the man who was the voice of Heisel. Yeah. The voice of Hillsborough and his uh, broadcasting from Hillsborough as they carried the bodies out after that tragic FA Cup semi-final is just about the most haunting piece of broadcasting I think I've ever heard. And extraordinary to think that he did it without a note and with tears rolling down the cheeks of yeah. his face. Um, but he was also the voice of the big football occasions for me as a kid growing up, which you could not see live on television apart from the European Cup final. This is in the days before the Champions League. You know, Liverpool won that competition on sundry occasions, but the only game you would see on the telly was the final. And the yeah. other games you had to follow on your radio on medium wave, which was always difficult to listen to after dark. The reception would come and go and you'd be probably... As a young boy, you'd be hiding under the bedclothes, having been sent to bed at night, well past your bedtime, listening to some crackly commentary on medium wave on a transistor radio, uh, pressed against your ear, hoping your parents didn't notice. And it would be Peter Jones who would be the voice of these Liverpool triumphs. So he was really the one that made the biggest impression on me. And it was a thrill to work alongside him, albeit for far too brief a, a period. On television, I grew up with John Motson and Barry Davis on the BBC and Brian Moore on ITV. And that was it because Sky didn't exist. There was no satellite television mm. and uh, no one else had any football. And there wasn't that much live football. It was really match of the day or the ITV equivalent on a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon. That was your access to, to televised football. You mentioned Rob Hawthorne. He and I are actually the same age. And the bit I didn't tell you about 
me getting the job at Radio Leeds was that he was also a candidate for that job and the poor chap didn't have the inside track. So I sat there next to Rob, who I already knew, in the interview room ahead of that Radio Leeds interview, knowing I was going to get the job. I've never, I've never really <laughs> talked to him about it since, but he and I were, were both at, at Radio 2 Sport and it became Radio 5 Live together. Uh, yes, Alan Green was already there. Mike Ingham was already yep. there. Um, and the first day I walked into the office at, at BBC Radio Sport. So I moved there from Radio Leeds at the end of 1989 when I was 24. That was my big break on national radio. They, they gave me a job and I walked in the first day and I looked around the office, the sports room it was, room 3096 on the third floor of Broadcasting House. And I looked at the faces and there was Brian Butler, the famous football correspondent. Next to him was Peter Bromley, who was the racing equivalent, extraordinary commentator over many, many years. Then at the next desk was the cricket correspondent, Christopher Martin Jenkins. Ian Robertson, who did the rugby until very recently, only retired last year. And these were iconic figures of the broadcasting industry and they were wonderful people to learn from, all very generous with their time, all probably 30, 40, in some cases, nearly 50 years older than me. So those were my really important formative experiences, uh, working in some cases with commentators that I'd, I'd grown up listening to. So mm -hmm. I was very fortunate to have those people around me really to guide me. Last time we, we were going to kind of talk about the kind of mid nineties, that's the when like you you mentioned the Abyss guy, B of course, and you know they, they came into the, the table really as it were, and it was a time where the Premier League was effectively being recommercialized, it was being rebranded, it was as a league of global appeal. The money started to flood in uh, from from B Sky B largely, meaning clubs were able to attract foreign talent and spend fortunes and bring their squads uh, equally on domestically good players. Um, did you honestly foresee like, just how meteoric the rise of the Premier League? Um, from where it was to where it is now, could you, could you have foreseen that or could anyone have foreseen that? No, I don't think so. I mean, it wasn't just a rebranding of the Premier League. It was the creation of the Premier League yeah. in 1992, because before that, it was the old first division, which was great. But English football had huge problems, some of them financial through the mismanagement of the clubs. Um, many of them were really on their beam ends and living beyond their means. But more than that, we weren't that far removed from Heysel, from Hillsborough, from serious crowd disorder, from violence on the streets, from violence in the grounds, from Mrs. Thatcher wanting to ban professional football at one stage when she was prime minister. So we'd been through some dark days and the image of the game was not good. And suddenly B Sky B turned up and paid what then was an enormous amount of money for this shiny new version of the first division that they were going to call the Premier League. And we had the Sky Strikers, you know, the... The, uh, the cheerleaders on the pitch, it was very American. It was all to do with style, if not so much with substance. But I don't think anyone could see at that stage how the leap was going to be made to this event now, this competition, which is the envy of the world. I mean, it's overtaken even the NFL here in the United States, which previously was held up as the most dominant of sporting competitions. I think the Premier League's gone beyond that. And certainly in, in terms of its global appeal, it has. So no, in those early days, when we were looking at this obscure TV company, which insisted that you put a funny shaped dish on the wall of your house to receive it. We weren't sure it was gonna work, either in terms of that as a company or it as a product. And it was several years before, uh, really probably after they'd signed another TV deal, three years down the line, before we were convinced that this was here to stay. Of course, I think yeah, the Premier League, in my own opinion, was that okay, the, kind of, the money was being pumped in from B, B Sky B, but to run, it doesn't work unless you have the characters and the, I suppose, the figures and, the, like, the, I suppose, the 
people who are going to be the manager, such as Alex Ferguson, you had Kevin Keegan, you had Joe Royal, you had all these big, big names, Howard Kendall. Um, I think they, they helped to market it to a point where it couldn't really fail. I think um, if you have Alex Ferguson and Keegan rivaling each other on like, and like, like, like a game of tennis, really, online and on interviews, like, I think you're right. I think it was very, very hard to see how it was going to fail. But despite it being in the midst of such a, um, a strange and uncertain period of football, really, where England was emerging from the ghosts of the past, really, um, it was still kind of suffering from that. Um, do you think that football nowadays, in terms of like the players we now produce, have been augmented? Do you think that the rate of which we produce good players in Britain has been helped by B Sky B's money? Or not even B Sky B, just the money that's been pumped in from all angles? Uh, not really. No, I, d- I don't think our academy system is necessarily fit for purpose. I think it's something that the clubs have because they're, they're told they have to have it and they feel they should have it. I don't feel that they believe they get value for money from it. And I'm not sure that all of them are totally committed to it, but it's something that they have to go along with. I'm not sure that our production of young players has, has uh, improved dramatically. I think the FA have made good inroads. I think there's better leadership there now and a better structure. And we're starting to see the benefits of that. But I think this should have happened 20 years ago rather than now, in all honesty. Of course. Um, well, just on the Premier League, before we do move on to, your, to kind of expand on your career, as it were, um, can you recount for us your favourite Premier League game to commentate on? Because I guarantee every consumer um, who's listened to you commenting on these games will have a memory. And um, I told you, mine was the Liverpool 4, Arsenal 4, back in, I think it was April 2009. I just couldn't believe that was the... The, the launch pad for Andre Arshavin to the Premier League, and that, that sticks in people's minds. Do you personally have a favourite game you've ever commented, commentated on in the Premier League? Oh, do you know, it's so difficult to narrow it down um, because there are so many contenders. I think I was lucky enough to do the two, four, three games, Liverpool and Newcastle, Stan Collymore and all of that, where Keegan ended up draped over the advertising hoarding as the title <laughs> yeah. slipped away in the mid-90s from that wonderful Newcastle team. Watching them on a weekly basis was, a, was an utter thrill. Mm. It was just pure theatre going to St James's Park at that stage with the big characters in that team as well. They really were box office. And, you know, I would have loved it, loved it, loved it, to, to quote Kevin Keegan, if, if they'd won the title that year. I mean, I have to be neutral in all of this. But looking back on it, I think that would have been terrific for the game in, in England if Keegan's Cavaliers had actually managed to carry off the title, which is nothing against Manchester United, who've given us all such entertainment down the years. So those two, four, three games would be would be up there. I think the other contenders, um, yeah, the Arshavin game certainly is, it might sneak into the top 10. Um, I have particular cause to remember a game back in January 1995 at Selhurst Park between uh, Crystal Palace and Manchester United because Uh-oh. Eric Cantona jumped into the crowd and I was commentating live across the nation for BBC Radio that night and the head of television sport, a guy called Jonathan Martin was listening in his bathtub at home in London and heard it and decided that he wanted to add me to their roster of commentators working on Match of the Day. So that got me my break on TV, thanks to Eric uh, landing his studs in a supporter's chest. So that would be another one that's on my list. Of course, I mean, it's funny because we had Lee Clark on the podcast last week and he was talking very, very and candidly about like Faustino Espria and the characters. He basically said that they used Keegan's personality and vicariously used it on the pitch to help him win matches. He said it was so forceful and so loud and just so... Um, they just took such inspiration from it. So it's interesting that you say as a commentator in the gantry that you say that's, that sticks out as a memorable moment because of the personalities on the touchline. Yeah, I, they, they just exuded energy in every way. I mean, I've been lucky enough to work with Kevin um, on TV. You know, he was one of our pundits on ESPN in the UK for several years. And he was great fun to work with. 
But at that time, he, he was at the peak of his powers when he was in charge of Newcastle for the first time. And I remember actually being with him and them, again, working for BBC Radio at Grimsby oh, on yeah. a midweek evening when they got promotion to the Premier League in uh, 1993. And Grimsby was taken over by Newcastle supporters. And the ground held about 14,000. And that was the official attendance that night. But there were twice as many people milling around the place. It was extraordinary. And you felt that energy then. And you wondered how they would cope in the higher echelon of the Premier League. And the answer was wonderfully well. I don't think, even though they didn't win the league, I don't think we've ever seen anything quite as exciting as Newcastle uh, were at that point again in the Premier League. Even this current Liverpool team, which is admirable and wonderful to watch. But there's an efficiency about Liverpool that there wasn't about Newcastle. You never quite knew when the wheels were going to fall off as well, which occasionally happened. And that added to the appeal and the sense of uncertainty over, over watching them. They were just so exciting. Of course. So obviously you cemented your, your status as a king of the commentary world and domestically in the UK. Um, but of course, um, you're not only known in the UK. So your first ever Champions League final was 1996. You travelled all the way to sunny, sunny Rome. And yes. um, correct me if I'm wrong, Ajax, basically the best young team potentially ever to ex have existed um, played Juventus who uh, at the time Del Piero they're just, just a phenomenal array of players um, do, do you think you were kind of one of the first people to see how good the Ajax team were and did you see back then the careers they would go on to have yeah they they were the best young team in Europe just as they were the best young team in Europe last year even though they didn't go yeah. all the way in the Champions League but that still really annoys me do you know I, I think I think actually if you have to compare the 1996 Ajax team to 2019 I just I don't understand how they didn't beat Spurs. There's some strong similarities to that team because you think back then there were the De Boer brothers who are the staunch midfield and defensive unit. You had the attack of Asampa, Cliver, and Fnee George as well, who played amazingly. Yari Lippmann and got their goals that season. You compare them to the likes of De Jong, De Ligt, Ziesch, and them lot. How, like, how like, much of a comparison did you see between those two sides? It was like an echo of the past. So very much. I mean, it, it brought the whole thing full circle because Ajax, whilst they've always had a wonderfully productive academy, have been through some darker times in the interim. But to see them back was great because they play the purest form of football that you'll see from any club. Um, I've been working here in America for 18 months and I've spent quite a bit of time with Frank De Boer, who's been oh, yeah. as the manager of Atlanta. In fact, he, he left his job last week after going out of this tournament that we were, were talking about earlier on. But to talk to him, away from matches about that Ajax philosophy because he went back and managed them, of course, to four consecutive league titles uh, before going to Inter unsuccessfully, Crystal Palace unsuccessfully, and now Atlanta United, sadly, unsuccessfully. But to get some idea of what it was like in, in those days, they'd all grown up together. Um, they knew what each of them was going to do next. They were so tuned in to each other. And of course, they were inculcated in the Ajax way. So he said it was just the perfect footballing education and set him up for a glittering playing career, of course, as with so many others. It's funny because Edward Davids gets a really, really bad name for his time in England, like this time at Barnet, I think. that There are anecdotes from certain players, I won't name names, but of course I've said he's, he exudes a bit of arrogance, he exudes, exudes a strong character, shall we just say. And um, did, you, did you ever come across him in your time in England? Yes, yeah, and also working on TV. I did a World Cup with him when he signed up for, for ITV. And he was not the easiest of, of people to, to deal with. I think it's a pity that we judge him on his time at Barnet because that was not the Edgar Davids that dominated yeah. midfields across Europe for so long. That was a, a, a shadow, really, a, an imitation of the, the real man. But yes, all of those players. I mean, what a treat to be able to, to look at them. And, and also, I think one of the problems with Dutch football 
and it's also its strength, is that they are so sure that the way that they play the game is the right way. And when you look at Rinus Michels and the team of 1974 at the World Cup and that Ajax team, you have to concede that they're right. They do play it the right way. But hand in glove with that goes a little bit of Dutch stubbornness, that when things aren't quite going right, they still think it's their way and their way only. And that's been the downfall of many a Dutch manager. We've seen it in the Premier League as well on more than one occasion. So that's maybe one downfall to the the Dutch approach to football. But overall, um, you know, if they can stop arguing amongst themselves, which periodically destroys a World Cup or a European Championship campaign, they're, they're wonderful, aren't they? I think they are one of the. I think they're one of like the kind of living examples of how like football can be quick cyclical. It works in cycles. Like, um, of course, you mentioned there about Ajax in the nineties. It took them twenty years to get to reach those heights again, and you see it in the national team. Like they're starting to reemerge slowly now, but I mean they've not made the last two tournaments. So, no. um, so I mean that is. I mean Scotland's not made a. Like, I can't really talk. So Scott, Scotland haven't made one in twenty-five years. Whatever it's been. Of course, so. he'd add the Scots somewhere in there. Let's keep to the script now, Greg. Sure, uh, sure, sure you get that enough from Alan McCoy. <laughs> Let's get back to the final of ninety-six. Uh, a remarkable setup for the competition. Juventus having had a tough road to the final, just beat Nantes to the semis. You have Ajax, who are the juggernaut defending champions. There's a lot of pressure on the Italian team. It's the home final. You do sense that there is a bit of favouritism here, but Ajax have a lot of back in themselves. Van Gaal tapped up the team's hopes of winning the competition that night. Lippi, equally as talented a manager, he wanted to bring it back to Juventus and make it, make it so they are a European juggernaut again. How did you feel that evening? What was your overriding emotions that night? Worried, because I lost my ticket on the way to the stadium. No way. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where it went, but my accreditation went missing on the way to the Olympic Stadium. And I didn't think I was going to be able to get in for the game. Uh, so that was, that, that was my overriding emotion. It was a funny, I mean, it was a funny trip. I went there, I think Peter Drury was the other commentator. So we travelled out together and uh, we went a couple of days beforehand, which was a nice luxury to have. The weather was very pleasant. And I rem- my main memory of that day, I mean, the, the game was great. My main memory of that day, and this will seem strange to you, was of a, was a going to the Vatican, just to, to visit. I hadn't seen the Vatican City up close for, for a while. I'd been there, I stayed in Rome for the 1990 World Cup because I was presenting that for BBC Radio from the studios in Rome by and large and then doing one or two of the games at the Olympic Stadium. So I decided to go back to the Vatican with Peter and we, we went and suddenly there was this shout across the piazza uh, by, by the square outside the Vatican and it was Howard Kendall shouting out. All right. Um, and he was there with the then lady in his life who'd taken him there as a surprise because it was his 50th birthday. Um, so, <laughs> so that's something that sticks with me, particularly given the sad demise of Howard Kendall, one of our truly great managers um, who fought a, a long battle with various issues. Uh, but he was in great form that day and he was going to the game as well as part of his treat. Uh, and I remember talking through the, the prospects for the game with him right, right outside the Vatican. Um, it's, it's strange what stays in your memory. I mean, the game itself, I, I, do you know, this, this, is, this will sound awful, but there does come a point whereby, as when you ask me which Premier League games you would pick out, it's actually quite difficult to remember the detail because you've got so many games compartmentalised inside your mind. Yeah, if I was to go back and through all the, the commentary notes that I have, which I file away at home, that would probably jog my memory. Or if I was to watch the tape, it would jog my memory. But as a commentator, I think you get very used to dealing on short-term memory. You prepare for a game so that you know everything you could possibly need to know about that game. 
And then you have to be able to move on to the next game, the next project. And you, you then shelve that away, the stuff from the previous match, and work on making sure that your mind is all about the next project. So for that reason, it's actually quite difficult to look back with any form of detail about occasions yeah. like the 1996 Champions League final. I know that will seem really strange, but for the first few years of your career, it's not so difficult because you haven't got so many things to file away. But once you've done 10, 15, 20 years plus, it becomes more of a challenge. Um, okay. so, uh, so John, I'm actually a, a Newcastle United fan. And when I think of you commentating on Champions League matches, I think back to that 2002, uh, 2003 Champions League run, you commentated oh, on Craig the- Bellamy. Craig Bellamy, it's in. Um, did you commentate on Shalam Yobi versus Barcelona and Shearer's first half, Patrick versus Bayer Leverkusen as well? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. All, all part of, you know, those wonderful Newcastle memories um, and, and all contributed to it. It's funny, I mean, Newcastle supporters, when they get in touch on social media or, or whatever, usually it's the Bellamy Feyenoord uh, goals that, that really resonate with them. I mean, that was just the most amazing. It, it was... It was at a time when the Champions League had two group stages rather than one. So it was a really elongated competition. Um, but that was also a time when, when Bobby Robson was around and at the helm. And he was just the most glorious of people to deal with. Um, he was the nicest of men, so helpful to us commentators. Because I, I don't know how widely known it is, how we tend to operate. But once you become, say, one of the main commentators for Sky... I suppose, BT, uh, BBC, ITV. Part of your job is to establish relationships with managers, people at the club, so that quietly, um, if you get on well with them and they trust you, you can give them a call before a game. And very much off the record, they'll, they'll help you with a little bit of background and sometimes they'll tell you what the lineup's likely to be or if someone's carrying an injury. So I was a regular uh, caller of Bobby Robson on his phone uh, ahead of games I was commentating on and he was always extremely kind with his time there would be an, an invitation to go in for a drink after the match in his office in fact I was in his office at St James's Park one day when he was offered the England manager's job so I can't remember who the Premier League game was against I think it had ended as a draw I was commentating with David Cleet and we accepted Bobby's very kind invitation to go into his office after the game and I think it was when Kevin Keegan left the England job and the FA were caught out and needed someone at short notice and David and I and a few of Bobby's friends and his wife Elsie uh, we're all having a, a, a drink in, in the office afterwards before setting off on the long journey home. And his phone rang and he picked it up and it was the chief executive of the FA asking if he was willing to take on the England team. Um, so we were, we were part of a little bit of history. Of course, history then shows that he didn't end up going back to the England manager's job, but it was fascinating to be eavesdropping on that. And of course, you see that and you can't report on it, despite your journalistic background, because you're there on the basis that you're not there as a journalist. You're just there as someone that knows Bobby Robson and he quite enjoys your company. So he's invited you in for a drink. But that was a, a little a window on, a, on a, quite a, uh, a murky world of you know, phone calls from either from clubs or organisations offering jobs to these fellas. Uh, just also, just how good is it commentating on these Champions League nights? And if you had to pick a favourite one, it's going to be very tough. But which one would you go for? Oh dear, you're asking all the most difficult questions. Um, and we'd be lenient on him here because he's done the best part of 15 plus years of Champions League football. So we'll give you five of the best ones because oh. I don't think one's enough. Ahmed, one's enough. <laughs> one's enough. One is plenty, yes, but I feel like Ooh. you'll have him here forever trying to think of one. 
Yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a few your way. Um, I think, um, yeah, I, I think my Champions League experiences, so I've, I've done it really since the start of the competition. So that's over 25 years, both on radio and TV. So it's an awful lot of experiences. And I tend to remember it more for the trips, which is not to say I like a good holiday. It's just, you know, I remember, for example, going to do a Dinamo Kiev game when Valery Lobanovsky was the coach, the, the greatest coach that Ukrainian football, arguably Russian football, uh, before the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union has produced. And he was Alec Ferguson, except he was more frightening and less fun. Um, and I remember going to Dinamo Kiev's training ground, supposedly to interview him for ITV, and waiting in this room. And we suddenly realized that we would have been put mistakenly in the room to wait for Lobanovsky, where they had all the illegal drugs that they were giving their players. So we saw all sorts of concoctions and things and sort of potions and tablets and injections and things all laid out for the players. Um, and uh, we clearly weren't meant to be there. And eventually after a few minutes, Lobanovsky came in and started shouting at us in Ukrainian and, and obviously wanted us out of there very, very, very quickly. But that's the sort of thing that stays with you almost more than a match. I remember doing Basel Manchester United. Oh, uh, I know yes. that, that doesn't sound like a wonderful game, but it was 3 3. Um, when Manchester that United. That was the Van Nistelrooy goal, wasn't it? The one where he's juked around the, the fullback and bent it into the far post. I remember oh, you, your words that now were quite remarkable. You've, you've, you've got a better memory than I have because what sticks with me <laughs> from that night is that um, Basel, who were unheralded, I mean, they were largely known for having a lady chairman who had a, a happy habit of getting in the bath with the players afterwards, uh, oh, Gigi okay. Erring. I think she was president of the club and she made headlines because of that at that stage. But their team on the pitch was really good as well. And they had an Argentine front two of Jimenez and Rossi who caused yeah. Manchester United endless problems. And it finished in a thrilling 3-3 draw. So that's another one that, that stays with me. I think the fine old Newcastle, yeah. that, that would be right up there. I could pick any one of five or six Manchester United games, particularly some of the comebacks, when they put themselves in a seemingly impossible position. And talking of comebacks, if you ask me about my European memories, some of the best experiences have actually been in the Europa League as well, because I yeah. commentated on the semi-final of the Europa League where Middlesbrough had to score four in the second leg against Stauer Bucharest. Yes, yes. I had this game on tape. And I watched it back just last night after watching the 99 rematch, the 99 replay on ITV. And I cannot forget the minute you shouted Macaroni as he smashed in what was, uh, I think, was it the penultimate goal? Because the final goal was yes. right at the end. Yeah, I mean, that was one. And I thought I would never, ever commentate on a comeback like that again. But fast forward to 2010, and I found myself at Craven Cottage watching Fulham do exactly the same to Juventus. Uh, a Juventus side with Ravinelli and co in it. And that was garlanded by a great goal, a chip from Clint Dempsey mm. uh, at, the, at the Hammersmith end at Craven yeah. Cottage that lifted the roof on the, uh, on the old place. And they too were, had worked themselves into a position over two legs where they needed to score four unanswered goals against the old lady of Turin. And they managed it when Roy Hodgson was the manager. So there's a, another European memory for you. It's funny because I actually remember that the Basley team you refer to. Do you remember the Yakin brothers? It was Murat and Hakin Yakin. Yes, um, yes, I do. So they put out Martin O'Neill Celtic in the Champions League qualifiers that year. The same year, Celtic got to Seville in the UF Cup final. Um, 
and I was actually I'm a Celtic fan, so I was at the game in Seville. But that's my overriding memory from that season for some reason, and it shouldn't be. <laughs> Celtic went to Anfield and put out Liverpool, went to Ewood yeah. to put out Blackburn Rovers. So that was a quite a special time in my life. So I need to thank the Yakin brothers for that. So just kind yeah. of moving on, like to how you actually develop our relationship with a co-commentator. Now, Alan McCoy, as you've mentioned, is one of your kind of favourite co-coms. But like, do you need to identify like what they're like as a person before working with them, or do you, do you get to pick them? No, no, you certainly don't get to pick them. You don't get to make many choices in, in, in our line of work. The bosses do all of that. So they tell you where you're going, who you're commentating on, who you're commentating with, uh, which is fine. That's how it should be. Uh, so no, you tend to have people that you're paired with that maybe you've never worked with before. So I think you, I think you have to come into it from a, a point whereby part of your role, because you're the professional broadcaster, is to make those guys as good as they can be. So you've got to make them feel at home. You've got to give them the room to do what they do best and to provide the insight that we simply can't because we haven't played or managed the game at the level that they have. So the best of the co-commentators can show you things and tell you things that you just haven't noticed while sitting at home watching the game or even sitting alongside them commentating on the game. I think there are a good number that just state the blindingly obvious and they're not really providing value for money in, in my view, but the best of the best are the ones that tell you things that you just haven't seen. And yes, there are so many different personalities. I mean, if I think of some of the people I've worked with over the years, Trevor Brooking at the BBC, Ron Atkinson on Champions League with ITV, uh, Jim Beglin for many years doing the world feed of the Premier League. It's great. Uh, Andy Townsend. Uh, I work with a guy called Taylor Twelman now on American television, which is a completely different yeah. beast. Um, you know, they, they broadcast in a very different way. Um, they're much more wordy. They talk a lot more. So it's been interesting getting to work with Taylor, who's very good at what he does. Uh, he's a, a young analyst um, by TV standards. I mean, he's just turned 40. He was a very successful player. He was the first man to score 100 goals in Major League Soccer. And then just before he was due to move to England, he was, he was linked with Preston. And, and in fact, to move to Newcastle United, he suffered a really serious concussion, which ended up finishing his career. So he's turned to television and is now a very, very accomplished analyst. Uh, over here. So working with him requires different skills, different adaptations from me to working with a Beglin, an Atkinson, uh, a Brooking or a Townsend. Uh, or, you know, I had Craig Burley, former Celtic man on, on Satanta for oh, yeah, Craig Burley, four yeah. years. He, gets, was, uh, he was great. He gets, to uh, he can, he can be a kind of funny reputation in Scotland for being a bit, I mean, I don't want to say arrogant, but um, and a bit maybe eccentric as well. Is he, is he just a really nice guy to deal with as well? Or? No, he's great. He, honestly, I, I you know, I, I hear what you say about the reputation he might have had in Scotland. He was really good. He is really good. He's now working over here oh, in America yeah. for the same company as me, but a different wing of, of ESPN. And, and loving it, he's been over here seven years. But in terms of a co-commentator, there aren't many better than Craig because he'll just call it as he sees it. And he will tell you things that you've not noticed. And he's not influenced by the fact that he's still mates with someone that's on the pitch. He doesn't let that stand in the way. He doesn't spare anyone. And, and I think from an analyst, you want strong, cogent, pungent opinions. Whether you agree with him or her or you don't almost doesn't matter, but you want them to elicit some sort of strong reaction and you want to notice them. So I think Craig ticks the boxes in all of those respects. Uh, quietly, he would work very hard at it. He was very well informed. And one of the things I liked about Craig was that often I would spend a couple of hours before the game down in the tunnel just talking to people because you get a lot of your best lines from casual conversations with the ref or the managers or one of the players that you know. 
but he would never go down there because he knew that if he did, he would be confronted by people that he knew from his playing career. He would have a chat with them and then he might feel honour bound to favour them in his commentary and he didn't want that pressure on him. So he wouldn't go into those areas. So that was a very, very professional approach from him. Uh, in fact, someone sent us a photo last night of 10 years ago to the day and it was a picture of he and I on the garden route in South Africa whilst we were doing the 2010 World Cup together for ITV. So I've got a lot of happy memories of, of working with Craig and I... He also likes winding people up. So, you know, he likes to get a reaction from people. And I think people don't realise that he's playing them on occasions. You know, he's deliberately winding them up. I know he's very amused when he looks on Twitter and he's posted something deliberately going on a fishing expedition to try and uh, reel people in and it's worked. You know, that's just part of his character, but it's part of his fun as well. Fair play. Um, is it actually true that he has a Fernando Torres tattoo? I'm not aware that it is. No, no, that that's news to not me. Kind of, apparently, I think he lost a bet or something, and uh, the result of the bet was if he, as if he lost it, he had to get a picture of Fernando Torres's knee slide celebration in the camp. now. I, I would imagine knowing <laughs> that Craig, a bell? If, if that was the case, it would be a temporary tattoo which has long since been removed. <laughs> <laughs> fair play, fair play to him. But um, I mean, I know I know Tom's got a question regarding TV and radio. Hmm. Um, yes, yeah, so I was going to say it's been a lot said about this uh john but in your opinion what are the key differences between tv and radio commentaries massive totally different and and it's always mystified me often tv more often than not recruits from radio and there's actually not much of a reason why a really good radio commentator becomes a really good tv commentator because it's a bit like putting a straitjacket on from radio you're in the luxurious position of being an artist with a blank canvas in front of you and your job is to paint pictures and you can imagine you're commentating to someone that's blind paint some pictures for them paint the scene you can do it in whatever style you want you can be impressionistic for example if you want you can be quite flowery in your language on television it's the opposite of that because 95 percent of the job all the descriptive work you do on radio is done for you by those 25 tv cameras so you put on a straight jacket and you accept that you're not going to contribute as much, but because you're not going to use many words, the words you do use need to be apposite, correctly chosen, well delivered, and actually add to augment the picture. So if you're a, a decent TV commenter, in my opinion, and everyone will have a different view, but I was trained really by John Motson and Barry Davis when I was the young office junior at match of the day. And both of them said, look, just don't talk very much. You don't need to. And I was a bit sceptical, thinking, well, how do I justify my existence if I'm not talking? But watching the two of them at close quarters, it quickly became apparent that you only need to talk about five, between five and 10% of the amount that you do on the radio. Anything more than that is too much. And so I'm from the less is more school of commentating, whereby don't tell people what they can already see. There's no place for geographical description in a television commentary. There's no need to describe a cross. You've just got to say who's made the cross and who's on the end of it. And aside from that, there's not a lot more to do. So identification is front and centre of a TV commentator's existence. And then just reflecting a moment with a nice turn of words if something significant happens and putting things in context. But apart from that, you're just captioning a picture that's being provided for you. So I think the biggest thing for a new TV commentator is getting used to the idea that you don't have to do very much. But the best TV commentators, in my opinion, are the ones that are brave enough not to speak. And Barry Davis used to say to me, look, if you're ever wondering about whether it's worth saying something, 
don't say it because if you have to think whether it's worthwhile it's not Interesting. Now, uh, I fully appreciate you're a, no doubt a very, very busy man out, the, out in the States, so, and we've kept you long enough, so we're now approaching the kind of last couple of questions. Um, mm-hmm. Before we touch on the National League and your kind of um, affiliation with York City, of course, um, what would be your most awkward interview live in TV? Uh, Mick McCarthy walked out of a live football focus interview with me. Um, it was before a, <laughs> I think it was a World Cup playoff between the Republic of Ireland and Turkey at Lansdowne Road in Dublin, where the Aviva Stadium now is, and I was calling that game live for the BBC. And as part of that build-up, we had him live on Football Focus. And Mick, like myself, is a Yorkshireman. He's rather more bluntly spoken than I am. He's a lovely man. Um, I mean, I I actually worked with him after this incident. I spent three weeks in Brazil with him at that ill-fated World Club Championship that Manchester United played in in 2000. He and I were billeted together, the only two English-speaking people in a hotel in Sao Paulo, surrounded by armed security guards. Uh, But that's another story. Um, But on this particular occasion, England were also playing uh, a a game of great significance. And so the editor of Football Focus said to me uh, at the end, just ask him a question about England, um, because he was born in England. So I said to him, Mick, um, thank you for talking to us about the Republic of Ireland. Of course, we're all aware that although you're an Irishman through and through, you also, you're born in Barnsley and very, very proud of it. Um, so a word on England today. And he said, you must be bloody joking. He said, you, you're talking <laughs> about me as an Englishman. I'm Irish today and Ireland are playing. And that's all I want to talk about. Right. Interview terminated. See you later. And he thrust down the microphone and walked off. So that would be one memorable one. Also, um, there were a few with Fergie in the tunnel. I think any television commentator of that era would tell you that it was an interesting experience interviewing Sir Alex Ferguson. He could be charming, he could be wonderful, but if he had a message to get across, he was determined to get it in there and he wouldn't necessarily answer your question. And also he was very good at sowing discord um, for his own purposes. So I did a Manchester United Arsenal game one day and then had to go and interview him for ITV's version of Match of the Day. So when they had the three years of the Premiership between 2001 and 2004. And the previous day, he came out with comments deliberately to Ryle Arsene Wenger saying Wenger gets preferential treatment from the FA in terms of his disciplinary charges when he's misbehaved on the touchline and this, that and the other. So I was told by the editor of the ITV show that I had to ask him about this and I thought, oh, that's going to go well. Manchester United had won the game, but Fergie wasn't in a great mood. So I did the usual back and forth, you know, what do you think of the game today? Uh, Question A, question B, question C. And then I came to question D, which was, um, can you expand on your comments on Arsene Wenger and the FA? yesterday and I asked him this and he just stonewalled and I've got the editor of the show in my ear in my earpiece saying right he's not answered ask him again I thought crikey this is territory I don't want to get into because I've been down this road before and seen others as well and the thing with Fergie was that he wasn't used to really being challenged so I asked him the question again and he still didn't answer it and I said with respect Sir Alex you brought this into the public domain yesterday and you're now now declining to answer questions about it. Please, can I ask you one more time for clarity on why you're so upset about Arsene Wenger and the Football Association? And I could see the veins on Alec Ferguson's face yeah. and the temples starting to throb. And that was the point where you knew you'd reached danger with him. And so as I asked this for the third time, he just looked at me with his eyes ablaze and he said, you know the rules here, you're banned. And he got my microphone, <laughs> threw it to the ground and thrust me against the wall of the tunnel. 
And that was the end of that interview as well. Having said that, I then gave him a bit back because what I'd learned from watching a guy called Nick Collins, who was Sky's touchline reporter for a long yeah. time, really good at his job. And I saw him taken apart by Fergie unfairly after he'd asked him some testy questions. And Nick turned around to him and said, look, you're not being fair. You're out of order here. You may be the man manager of Manchester United, but you need to behave with a bit of decorum. And I was really full of admiration for Nick for doing that. And Fergie was, if not caught on the back foot, at least almost appreciative of someone coming back at him because so few people did. Yeah. And so I, I followed the same pattern. And half an hour later, he came back, shook me by the hand and said, no hard feelings. So it obviously worked. And that was the thing with him. And the players who were subject of the famous hairdryer would tell you the same, that yes, he would fix you in his sights and he would give you verbal hell for a few minutes. But then the next time you saw him, it was totally forgotten and you moved on. And that was something that I think was particularly good about him. I don't, I don't really think you get managers like that anymore. Well, I think um, the closest to it maybe would be someone like Sean Dyche, but even he seems to be nice constantly. I feel like the, the kind of days of the hairdryer treatment to those in the media, you'll remember Jim McLean uh, back in the 80s. I think it was John Barnes in the BBC at the time. Um, he actually chinned John Barnes, you know? And uh, I mean, if that happened now, like, can you imagine the likes of Eddie Howe in jail after a match for punching a commentator? <laughs> well, I think also, don't forget that these guys now are media trained to within an inch of their lives and also followed by media minders from the clubs. So uh, with Fergie, you know, he was the only boss at Manchester United. So he did what he wanted to do. So he, he didn't need to be man-marked by a media officer all the time. So these things could happen. Now you'd find a media on, officer intervening as soon as a a potentially slightly difficult question was asked. You know, the, these guys are really quite protected now in terms of the questions they're expected to field. Nice one. Interesting. So, of course, um, I want to just kind of finally, because, as I say, I've kept you long enough now, um, York City. Now, what kind of feelings do you have for the club? Do you still follow the results and keep tabs on them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I do. And therefore, I'm still in more after they lost in their much-delayed playoff against Altrincham, particularly after we led the table for so much of the, the season. So I'm very sad about that. Um, and I, I'm sad to see them in the sixth tier. I mean, I, I like the National League. I, I started my career really working in the National League when Scarborough played in what was then called the Alliance Premier League. It was sponsored by a sportswear company called Gola. So I was actually uh, the commentator and reporter for BBC Radio York in 1986-87 when Neil Warnock then a chiropodist through the week, was the part-time manager of Scarborough. And he led them to become the first side automatically promoted to the Football League from the then version of the, the National League. So I've got very happy memories of working on that season um, and, and a, a good number of other seasons and many of my favourite FA Cup moments down the years. And that is one of my very favourite competitions. Involved National League clubs and from below that level as well, who've enjoyed the biggest day in their history when a Premier League side or a side from the Championship has come to town yeah. um, and they've had a famous victory. So I, I do follow and I do enjoy the National League. I'm just a bit sad to see my lifelong team languishing so far down the league and struggling to, to rise back up again. Although I've got high hopes under Steve Watson that, that better times are ahead when the world returns to its normal axis. Couldn't agree more. Interesting. And what would your 
Oh, sorry, sorry, go on, Ahmed. Sorry, mate. I uh, couldn't agree more because uh, my colleague Tom, who does the National League North games, he did the match on, on that day. And I don't think it, uh, I can compel in comparison his emotions because I think I was looking forward to visiting Moss, uh, Moss Road next season. That was Moss Cross, as, as it's called. Moss Lane, isn't it? Thank yeah. you. The new stadium because it was the photos that have been coming out of, of that ground. Uh, I was looking forward greatly to visiting there. But touching on Booth and Crescent, obviously you're, we're leave, you're leaving there now to move over there. Have your st- obviously, you talked highly about how influential it was in your life as a football commentator and as a fan. Mm. How, how, much have, uh, how, many feed, how much feelings do you have and uh, will you miss being there if you, oh. when you ever come back? Oh, I will miss it so much because, I mean, I, I'm not able to go very often, but I, I like to go at least once a season, sometimes more. I was last there at the tail end of last season thinking, it was a game against Boston United, thinking that was going to be the last time I ever went. Um, but little did I envisage that the new stadium would be delayed yet again. And then, of course, the pandemic descended upon all of us. So the timeline was a bit out, but it was I was very sad walking out of the gates for what may prove to be the final time, just because I've got so many memories. I remember going there for the first time at the age of 12 and just being in, enveloped, really, in a, in a love for the game and also the way it was staged. I, I can still visualise the scene of the swaying mass behind the goal. I can still taste the bovril. I can still smell the liniment coming out of the dressing rooms as you walk past the back of the main stand. And these were the things that hooked me about professional football. And they all happened there. And, of course, I went to school directly next door, I can still see the floodlights from my mother's house, which is only 200 yards away. And it is, for all its shortcomings, it is a proper old-fashioned football ground. It's a product of its era. It was built in 1932. And sadly, it's not really fit for purpose in the modern era. It's the only ground I can think of where the, the very few corporate boxes actually face away from the pitch. Bearing in the mind we've played the way we've played the last few seasons, maybe that is a blessing in disguise. But in all seriousness, <laughs> they do need the revenue streams. I'm just a little concerned that they're going five miles out of the city to an anonymous retail park where there has been a stadium. The Rugby League Club have played in it. They've now built on that site what I think will be a very nice stadium. But I just worry because one of the great joys of Booth and Crescent is that it's five minutes walk from York Minster. It's pretty much in the centre of the city. There's no parking, but if you're on foot or on public transport, it's very accessible, very easy to get to. You can pop into the pub on the way back or on the way to the game. And the match day experience is a very traditional one. And it won't be the same. Everyone's going to have to drive or go on a park and ride uh, to the new stadium. And I just think it's a bigger ask. Uh, having said that, when I started watching them, they're, they're in the old fourth division. And the first crowd was 1,971, as I mentioned to you a few minutes ago. And now they're pulling 3,000 on a, on a regular basis, despite being two divisions lower. So clearly, all is not bad. Um, I just hope that they have the spirit to recover from this season's disappointment when we all come back. I agree. We shall I certainly agree. see. So um, just kind of um, to round off what's been a fascinating discussion, um, there, will, there will be a, lo- a host of um, aspiring commentators who are going to tune into this podcast, um, Tom and Ahmed, of course, included. What advice would you, general advice would you have for an aspiring commentator, John? Um, work hard at it. Don't think it's easy. It's great, but don't think mm. it's easy. And I think you've got to be prepared to start at the very bottom without earning any money. I mean, many of my colleagues actually started by ringing up the sports editors of their local radio stations, whether BBC or independent, and just offering to go in and make the tea to support the staff that were broadcasting for the Saturday afternoon sports programme. Something as menial as that. 
something as boring. But one day, you know, the, the guy that's tagged to read the football results will fall in at the last minute and they'll look around the office and you will be the only person that can do it. And there's your big break. And that's been the way that so many people that I still work with and have worked with over the years have got their start. So don't be too proud. Um, be prepared to work at it. And ultimately, once you get a bit of a start and you then establish whether you can do it or not, because that's one of the things you need to find out whether your mouth is wired to your eyes, is wired to your brain. There needs to be a connection between those three things for you to have the fluency and the ability to summon a word or a thought or a phrase at a particular time. And some people are wired to do that and other people aren't. And there's nothing you can do about it if you haven't got that. But if you have got it and you get a bit of a break, you then need to want that opportunity more than anyone else and work harder than anyone else. I'm surrounded in my hotel room here by piles of paper and commentary sheets just from this small MLS tournament that I'm working on at the moment. And if I need to still be preparing for a game the next day at 2.30 in the morning, even though I'm tired, then I'm still doing it. And I'm 55 years of age and I've been doing it for 36 years. But this is a competitive industry. You've got to be good, but you've got to want it more than anyone else. And it's one thing to say you want it. Yeah, I want to be a football commentator. Great. Show you want to be a football commentator. You need to prepare to a greater degree than anybody else. And that preparation is just vital because fail to prepare, prepare to fail. That's what they say. And that's certainly, you, you'll have enough nasty moments over the years anyway, if you're involved in life live broadcasting, silly mistakes. I still make them, wish I didn't. I don't know of anyone that can rule them out entirely. But you give yourself a better than even chance if you prepare properly and that, it just means hard work. You saying that oh, gives me a memory. Can, you can appreciate that. You saying that gives me a memory of the time I asked Ian Everett a question when Barrow drew Tutu with Sutton last season and the steely-eyed response mm. he gave me for yeah. asking him that question. I haven't forgotten it ever since. So for me, it's quite, I'm quite glad he's gone to both now but <laughs> it wasn't a nice feeling <laughs> no but you learn from that and you learn from all your setbacks and that's why local radio is great certainly for me and people like you know we mentioned Rob Hawthorne Peter Drury Miles Harrison who's Sky's main rugby union commentator we all came through we're all roughly the same age and we came through as a group so you know Peter and Miles and myself for example all worked at Radio Leeds together we're all godfathers to each other's children we, we've kind of grown up together and had our careers together but I think we all tell the same story that local radio was a great place to work because you learn but you also can make mistakes without it becoming back page news on the Daily Mail because um, if, you, if you drop a clanger live on ITV in front of 15 million people in a Champions League game or at a World Cup then you know about it and people are right about it and you'll have a fairly uncomfortable few days but if you make a mistake on BBC Radio York then you can largely get away with it. As long as you learn from it, it's a benefit. That is the main thing, of course. And I'm sure all the listeners will be very, very um, gracious that you've given that sound, sound advice. Now, I may have told a white lie, John, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I said that was the final question, but this is definitely the final question. Now, on Not The 92 podcast, every single guest we've had, Lee Clark was on last week with Stephen Cleave the week before, um, they've all answered this question in their own little, well, little kind of quirky way. So it's actually a scenario-based question. Mm. Now, the scenario essentially is you're on a 13-hour car journey from London up to Inverness, right? Your last-minute last call-up to their commentary, but you can choose three celebrities, dead or alive, to accompany you in the car. Who do you choose? Right. 13-hour journey. 
Okay. Yeah. Th- think of who might be too chatty or not chatty enough. And who's going to bring in the food? <laughs> okay. Well, McCoy gets uh, boat number one because he'd be great company. Mm-hmm. Am I allowed him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Ah, that's okay. Yeah, it's okay. 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 Um, I'll go uh, Muhammad Ali, number two. I once mm-hmm. met him. Um, sadly, he was... He was ill. He was ridden by Parkinson's disease. But in my days working for Match of the Day, you would get invited to Sports Personality of the Year as part of your annual treat. And um, he was there, I think, in 2000 to present the award. And, uh, and we were all introduced to him beforehand, which was a great thrill. So uh, a fit uh, Muhammad Ali, I think I would have. Mm-hmm. And then, now it's a tricky one for the, the, last, the last member of that crew. Um, I mean, I'm assuming that the car is big enough to to fit three uh, significant personalities. So I think the third person that I would invite would be Ronald Reagan. Oh, what a guest. About being the most powerful man in the world and also what it's like to be a Hollywood star. Well, there we have it. Ali McCoist, Muhammad Ali and Ronald Reagan. Now, I don't know what they would talk about, to be honest, but you never know. I mean, I mean, happiness can be found in the weirdest of places. <laughs> I, I think that's the thing. You need to throw, if I've learned anything in life, you need to throw an unusual mix together and often the results can be spectacular. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that certainly competes with Lee Clark's selection for Gaz, Gaza, Paul Gascoigne is in the passenger seat. So, yeah, well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. But, John, it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege for you to join us from all the way in New England um, at 10 o'clock in the morning. We recorded this at 3 o'clock, so thank you for... Um, you could easily have slept in and you'd be forgiven for doing so. But thank you very, very much. On behalf of Not The 92 and all our listeners, thank you very much for coming on. It's been great fun. Thank you for finding time to have me. Thank you very much. Well, we wish you all the very best. That was a fascinating insight into the life and times of John, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to all our listeners for tuning in. This is Not The 92. I'm Greg Clark, and I will see you all again next week for another blockbuster interview. God bless, stay safe, and bye-bye for now.